0: And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out the history of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 199, The New Men. A couple of episodes ago we talked a bit about the story of Henry VII and the story of his reign, the themes, many of which were kicked off by both Henry and his 17th century biographer, Francis Bacon. As we discussed... There's plenty of debate now about Henry. Was he really the man that steadied the ship? Or was he in fact the incompetent tyrant who had the good luck to avoid causing another rebellion by the skin of his teeth and the absence of any viable competitors? As always, we'll hopefully decide together when we get to the end of Henry's story. But it's also worth saying that we should not think about what's going on in England under the Tudors in isolation. Certainly Henry himself reflected on his French upbringing. And he, and Henry VIII in particular, shared some of the aspirations of their royal colleagues on the continent, and share many themes, though, of course, with some uniquely English wrinkles. And everyone knows how important it is to have wrinkles. Essentially, the idea, invented largely by 20th century historians, was that in the 15th and early 16th centuries, a series of monarchies sought to organise their kingdoms more effectively, to be able to compete more effectively with their external enemies and followed their dynastic ambitions. This had a number of consequences, or maybe led to a number of strategies, might be a better way of looking at it. The objective, essentially, was to marshal the resources of the state more effectively. That meant more direct control, first of all, and that meant limiting the power of the feudal aristocracy, so you didn't need to work through them all the time. Now, the old idea that the barons were simply out to filch power from the king at the earliest opportunity has been banished to the outer darkness of historical thought for some time, in place of an understanding that the nobility was in fact the natural partner of the medieval monarch. But the old contract was no longer direct enough for your aspirant monarch. The reign of Henry IV had shown the danger of working through regional aristocratic satraps, exercising power on the king's behalf with, for example, Richard III's usurpation. And the wealth of the aristocracy gave a worrying level of potential independence of action. No, the idea now was to develop a bureaucracy through which the king could exercise power directly, to sideline the aristocracy essentially. Meanwhile, financial exploitation of the kingdom needed to be much more effective and taxation needed to be increased and its yield needed to be increased. In most cases, that would be used to raise the kind of armies that Charles VIII of France was to walk through all opposition in Italy. Though Henry was to see the reason for greater financial efficiency slightly differently, as we will see. Another theme was about unity. Unity of all kinds was important for the state to work effectively. There's no point having different factions that would reduce efficiency, and that meant religious unity. It also meant civil unity, an end to civil strife, and the imposition of law and order. And finally, in many European countries, it meant the start of a professional, standing, mercenary army. I think this one deserves a bit more comment. I remember that one of the things I found most difficult to grasp at school as a nipper during the brief walk through medieval times was that absence of central institutions that you take for granted in the modern world. Now at the age of 10 I didn't reflect to myself, hmm, interesting, apparently in the 15th century the state did not have a monopoly of physical force, I must look into that, because my brain was more in the run around like a mad thing, eat, sleep, excrete mode. But nonetheless, I kept coming back to that, well why isn't the king crushing them all with his super powerful army or police, as the next rebellion rolled around. In France By the end of the 15th century, Charles VIII was using his ability to tax his people to pay for a mercenary army, part of which at least was available night and day. Now the benefits were enormous. He no longer had to go to his nobility and convince them that he needed an army now, please. Would they muster in Chablis and bring their own cheese, if you wouldn't mind? His army was a professional army. It was trained and ready to fight wherever and whenever he needed it. Its quality was higher. But armies were extremely expensive, and that was a driver of the need for greater taxation, which in turn drove a greater bureaucracy needed to recollect it. The relationship between King and aristocracy also began to change, so much of what we hear about in the history of, say, Henry VIII is about court politics. Because more than ever, the court begins to be the centre, not just of politics, but also patronage. The nobility became ever more and more dependent on their prince for jobs and offices to survive and prosper. That's not entirely new, but it gets much more intense. So, as I say, while we English like to think we are different, a subtle and sensitive people, capable, for example, like no others, of appreciating the delights and functions of a doily, it is perfectly possible to look at the England of Henry VII as fitting into this general trend around Europe. Yes, England was just another part of Europe. However, there were some differences which are significant. One of these is the requirement for English kings to live of their own, which I may have mentioned just once too often now, but forgive me, it's important. This, in turn, came from the temporary weakness of monarchs who had usurped the throne, and needed to establish their legitimacy. So, Henry IV had removed Richard II, as you will no doubt remember from 1399. And once everyone had breathed a sigh of grateful relief, they started getting all stressy and whiny, that killing kings is a bad thing, capital B, capital T... As a general rule, the general public has a very short memory when it comes to its own shortcomings, and a very long one as regards its political leader's shortcomings. So, desperate for acceptance in the school ground of English politics, Henry IV made a promise to live of his own, to live off the income of his own personal crown lands, and never to tax his people unless external wars demanded it. And this was one reason why he was so much more fit to rule than the poey old Richard II was his claim. This was a short-term political slogan, you know, just like political parties put in their manifesto then quietly drop at the first opportunity once they're in government. Foolishly, English kings allowed parliaments to develop this from this political slogan into a constitutional principle. It was an albatross around the necks of English kings which, despite their prayers, would never from their necks so free drop like lead into the sea. Put this together with the principle that taxation proceeds from the consent of the people in Parliament and this drives the way Henry tries to raise money. Despite all the tyrannical exactions he makes, he never succeeds, or even tries actually, in making regular taxation part of his income, in the way that routinely happens under Charles VIII over the Channel. Then furthermore is the position of the king in law. And here we should have a brief discussion about Roman law. As you will understand, the laws of Theodosius and the Justinian Code were known and used at differing levels throughout Europe. In Italy, for example, in many ways they formed the basis of their legal codes and practices. In areas Germanic, like England, there appears to be an influence from Roman law, but it's slight. Here in England, it's common and customary law which holds sway. By the 15th century, the interest of the humanists in all matters classical increased the access to knowledge and texts. Rulers seized on the advantages to them inherent in Roman law, because there were some quite interesting ones to your budding tyrant. One is about process. Roman law advances an inquisitorial system rather than the adversarial jury-led system of common law. I do not want to be overly cynical about this because it is absolutely to be believed that basically all medieval kings very sincerely believed that delivering good justice was their responsibility, the king's peace. But you can also see that trial by peers was both complicated and not an easy system to manipulate if you wanted to rid yourself of a political aristocratic opponent. So there's a question of process. But principally, The thing that got them really excited is the phrase princeps legibus salutus est, used by a Roman jurist, which means the sovereign is not bound by the law. The sovereign is not bound by the law, which got everyone really excited. In much, though not all, of continental Europe, monarchs were able to present themselves as above the law. They were the law. This is not the case in England, where the principle was clear and reinforced that the king was bound by the law so henry the 7th faced some challenges his colleagues over the water did not no standing army less freedom to raise taxes because of a pesky parliament and an unhelpful legal system for a budding autocrat henry had been raised in brittany and probably had greater knowledge of the legal and political system in france than in england The Spaniard visitor de Ayala specifically writes home to say that Henry VII wanted to reign in the French manner but couldn't. Henry was obsessed with the need to establish the legitimacy of his reign, just like other usurpers like Henry IV and Edward IV. Being forced to work through his aristocracy emphasised his vulnerability. And above all, Henry was obsessed with the need to have the money to protect himself from challenge. All of these led in exactly the same direction. They led to a closely controlled bureaucracy that Henry could trust and rely on and control. Now, the English king was supposed to rule by consent and English monarchs, by and large, took this seriously. If they didn't, they very often suffered the consequences. But the forum for that, the king's council, had become unwieldy. Well, actually, it was always unwieldy, to be fair. From 1485 to 1509, there were a total of 227 royal councillors. Fair enough, at any one time there was no more than 150, and only some of those attended a meeting of the royal council. But even in royal council, there were normally 40 members of the king's council. Now, I don't know how many people you have in meetings when you go to work, but seriously, you can't make decisions with 40 people. Henry needed an inner cabinet, a group he could properly scheme with, plan, discuss, manage. For much of his reign, Henry had less than a dozen men who really sat on the inside with him. There's a physical representation of the way that Henry favoured a sort of inner cabinet of trusted men. At Westminster, we've often spoken of the painted chamber and the white chamber. The white chamber was where the king would gather with his council. But behind that chamber Henry created a new smaller chamber with a blank door in the white chamber guarded by one of his new personal bodyguard, the Yeoman of the Guard and behind that door was where the real intimates of the king could find him. The men who had access to the king in his private rooms were by and large the people who'd been with him in Brittany. And now you would, wouldn't you? If you're a football manager tipping up at the latest location on your gravy train journey, you tend to take your coaches with you. If a new CEO arrives at a multinational company, before you can say P45, he's bringing in folks he knew in his last company. Such is the way of the world. Henry is remarkably constant in the people he actually runs the joint with. And while we've covered the noble winners, the Stanleys, Jasper Tudor, Oxford, Margaret Beaufort and so on, we should also look at the men Henry VII appointed to run his government and who he stuck to. He didn't always treat them very nicely while they were there, but he stuck with them. By and large, these were not noble folks. They're men from the middle sort, as it were. In this, Henry again takes a similar approach to continental rulers, creating a bureaucracy staffed by men, dependent on their livelihood on their public office, and therefore loyal only to the king on whom they therefore depend, to whom they owe everything. It's difficult to get quite that kind of dependence from a Percy, for example. Percy has lineage, attitude, land resources. Now, I might point out that in common with much of Henry's reign, there's nothing dramatically new here. We've already noted that Edward IV appointed professional men of the gentry to public office. But Edward IV was also thoroughly medieval in the way he delegated power in the regions to his great men. Henry doesn't do that. Henry holds on to all that land he acquired at Bosworth. And he doesn't give it away. He doesn't create new peers. He keeps it in his hand. The critical centre of Henry's bureaucracy was a man called Reginald Bray. By 1485, Bray was already a middle-aged, experienced servant and fixer of the great and the powerful. 45 years old and the reliable tool of Margaret Beaufort and Thomas Stanley. Reginald Bray had proved himself in the fire. He didn't bear the badge of having flown to exile with Henry, but he had been the crucial link between Margaret and John Morton and Henry, making sure communications got through, drumming up support in England for the Tudor cause. Despite his trusted position at the side of the mighty, Bray was not from the right side of the tracks, had tracks existed back then. His father might just possibly perhaps have qualified as a gentleman that nebulous class of semi-noble folk cling desperately to the patina and rights of gentility by their fingertips. But in fact, he also may not. His father had made his daily bread as a surgeon. And although there are many classes of surgeon, and I'm going to bet he wasn't the standard teeth-puller barber type, it's not your standard career back then. Now, Polydor Virgil described Reginald Bray as father of his country, a man of gravity, and I've no doubt he was. But he was also, as the London Chronicle described him, as plain and rough in speech. Here is a man with no known cultural interests, though he managed building projects, to be fair. It's often difficult to know, actually, but in this case, you suspect that this was purely a man of business. Oddly, if you looked at his list of offices, you probably wouldn't know what you were dealing with. He was Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, and that was pretty much it. He didn't even become a Knight of the Garter until 1502. As I've said, making you a Knight of the Garter was how Henry liked to reward his trusted folk, rather than creating expensive bearages, of which Henry was not fond. Not fond at all. So Bray was an organiser, a fixer, a straightforward, effective doer, and a master of the arcane financial arts. He produced money for Henry, and he got things done. The Duchy of Lancaster turned a handy profit all the way through to his death. So his influence and authority came not from the office he held, but from his proximity to the king, his personal efficiency, his loyalty. He was the king's man. If there's one thing that marked Bray out as preeminent of all the king's servants, it's that Bray was one of the very few men, who could speak directly to Henry, disagree with Henry, and contradict him. Now that was a vanishingly rare quality. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight-loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com weightloss. And here's another. By 1500, Bray had become connected with the most infamous instrument of the king's power or tyranny, depending how you see it, the council learned. Sometimes mixed up with the later Star Chamber which we'll come to at some episode in the future. Let us talk next of Richard Fox. Now Richard Fox was not meant in the medieval world view to be in any position of power. He was from a family of freemen who had worked their way up to own a manor by the time of his birth in 1447. The family had scraped enough and earned enough to send their sons to Cambridge, from where by 1484 Fox was a canon and lawyer important enough to reach the notice of Richard III, since by 1485 he was in France with Henry VII. By 1487 he was keeper of the Privy Seal, again a position really close to the king, and then he became Bishop of Exeter, and later Bishop of the richest diocese in all Europe, Winchester. Fox was the king's diplomat. It was Fox that led all Henry's major negotiations, Scotland, France, Spain, the Netherlands and say anything you like about Henry, he was a great negotiator. And some of that credit must go to Fox. The Spanish ambassador, Carotz, would later remark that he was a fox indeed. And like Bray, and all the others in the inner circle behind the private door, he was utterly loyal to the king. He stuck by his king in every turn of policy into the darkest days of Henry's obsession with nailing his nobility's feet to the floor through extortionate bonds and fines. So loyal, was he, that his own chaplain urged Thomas More not to trust him because, quote, For the Lord my master, to serve the king's turn, will not stick to agree to his own father's death. At which point we should mention Morton's fork. As I think I have mentioned, this is a technique which had stuck to John Morton due to Francis Bacon. But in fact the super famous Erasmus ascribed the technique to Fox. And it does make more sense. Fox was around at the right time, later in the reign, while Morton had died in 1500. So, Morton's fork. There you are. Bishop Richard Fox has called you into his room at Westminster. And if you have a brain, you're terrified. You go in, sit down, and the gentle bishop explains that the king has needed a bunny. And surely, any loyal servant of the king would be pleased to provide a loan. Ah, you stammer, look at the way I live. I eat nothing but the poorest foods, such as oats. So, as you can see, I'm too poor. At which point Fox leans forward and nails you. Ah, he says, admirable, a careful man. So, since you have been so thrifty and careful, I'm sure you'll have put some by. I'll put you down for £2,000. Thanks for coming. So, obviously, you tell your mate about this. So, when he comes, he's prepared. When Fox turns his cadaverous face on him and puts the same question, surely any loyal subject to the crown would want to be offering a loan right now. Your friend thinks he has this one covered. Oh dear, he says, it's been a constant round of silk and parties and the cupboard's bare. At which point Fox leans forward and nails him. Surely, he says, someone with as magnificent a lifestyle as yourself will have a full treasury. I'll put you down for £2,000. Thanks for coming. That's a man that's as hard as nails and make no mistake. Sir Giles Daubeny was a bit exceptional in that he was in fact a knight and so a fully paid-up, card-carrying member of the nobility. So maybe in all those meetings he had his nipples tweaked as the posh boy, who knows. 37 years old in 1485, Daubeny had been one of Edward IV's household men, but had rebelled against Richard III in 1483, and from that time forward was at Henry's side. The quality of his relationship is marked by the fact that he was one of the very, very few that Henry elevated to the peerage. Again, it was his closeness to the king that marked his influence. As Deputy Chamberlain and then Lord Chamberlain, it meant he was constantly at Henry's side. Catherine of Aragon was to tell the Spanish ambassador that Daubney was the man with the most influence with the king. Daubney was the military man alongside John de Vere, Earl of Oxford. A commander of great bravery, leading men into France and Scotland, including wading through Flemish canals up to his armpits to lead an attack and breaking the Cornish Rebellion of 1495. I could go on, and so I will. There are two more to tell you about. Edward Poynings was part of that group Richard III had tried so hard and failed to win over, Edward IV's household men. He'd been part of the rebellion against Richard in 1483, had fled to Henry's side in exile. So he'd been through the fire. Once again, he was a constant part of the King's Council, made a knight of the garter like Edward IV's household men. One day he was a diplomat and another a military commander, fighting at Sloys, for example, and commanding Calais. And Edward Poynings was to be Henry's man in Ireland. He found time also to father seven illegitimate children, by the by. But probably more important, he has a law name after him. Poynings Law. I'd like a law named after me. Last, Thomas Lovell, a member of the minor gentry from Norfolk, part of Dorset's affinity, he also had the I was in exile with Henry, where were you, badge pinned bravely to his rather natty hat. Now Lovell's job was basically financial, treasurer of the King's chamber, so it was Lovell who continued the Yorkist strategy of using the quicker, nimbler, easier to control King's personal department to manage the national budget. Lovell was there later in the reign to screw bonds and loans from the nobility. He was there on the council learned in law, on the king's council in Star Chamber. He was behind the door. So that's enough about people. Reginald Bray, Thomas Lovell, Giles Daubney, Edward Poynings, Richard Fox. These men joined De Vere and Jasper Tudor around the king behind the closed door. No one else came closer. Okay, so rather than continue with Henry, I am now going to do what I should have done a long, long time ago and talk just a little bit about printing. Now, you are probably thinking that you have heard about the story of printing and publishing so many times in your life. But seriously, I couldn't leave out this, could I? If not, one of the inventions of all time and indeed one that has given me a career. It would be churlish of me. So this week, we'll talk about the invention and Gutenberg. Next time, about how printing spreads and how it's taken up in England. Now, it's well known that printing, in a sense, had been around for thousands of years in Asia, in terms of woodcuts. And then in the 11th century, there's something remarkably close to printing from a chap called Pi Sheng, who used clay characters. And then in the 13th century, wooden characters, and even bronze characters in Korea. But for some reason, none of these attempts took off. Possibly because clay and wood were simply too easily degraded, and so essentially just didn't work as well. And so it would be Europe where the mass printing technique was perfected. In the meantime, people kept writing books out by hand. And as you all know, as a result, books were fantastically expensive. Now, obviously everything connected with price is hideously complicated from this far away. But let's say it costs close to £1 for a book, a handwritten book. A steal, you might say. Bring the neck book agreement. But a labourer might earn £2 a year max. I don't know about you, but I'm not going to spend half my annual salary on a handwritten Bernard Cornwall, however much I love reading about Uhtred. A few things struck me about Gutenberg and the invention story. Now, I have no connection with invention, so forget the naivety, but it all takes a long time, years and years of hard work and graft by Gutenberg in his shed. Now, that's all right for us because we know he made it in the end. But he didn't know that at the time, and yet he kept going. Impressive to Jedi level. Second thought is that this is a traditional story of the inventor not coping very well with the commercial world and being chewed up and rather spat out by it. Now, fortunately, Gutenberg gets something out of it in the end, but nothing really in proportion to the value of his invention. And thirdly, it strikes me that the invention of printing is not just one invention, which is kind of the way I've always thought of it. There are a whole series of problems and challenges Gutenberg needed to solve. Well, that's probably normal, I suppose, for invention. But then there was the movable type problem, the materials involved, the actual pressing or printing, the paper, the ink. The amazing thing about the man we're going to talk about first was that he solved not just one, but many of these, though not all. Having said all of that, it was not just Gutenberg by himself. By the 1420s, woodblock printing was common, copper blade engraving was common. As so often, Gutenberg also built on the shoulders of others. Let's start with the movable type thing. Now, I have been confused for, well, 51 years about the phrase movable type. I mean, I know what printing is and all, so I can kind of guess the outcome, that is, lots of books... But what exactly does movable type mean? Does it jiggle about on the press or something? And so finally I found out. It means having a typeface which you can reuse and reuse in different configurations, i.e. different books. It's this that will make the big difference. Now you are probably all looking with horror at your generic MP3 player and calling me Mr Thicky. But there we are. I never said I was a genius. Enter one of the most famous men in history, Johann gutenberg stage left a german goldsmith from the city of mainz gutenberg was for much of his life not a wealthy man or indeed a particularly wealthy goldsmith but he'd had enough money to hire a workshop and there like the traditional mad inventor he labored away all through the 1430s and into the 1440s for much of it actually at strasbourg he could make a wooden block to print with that was fine but it took absolutely ages to make a block for one page, and then when you inked it and used it, the thing was no longer usable. So Gutenberg turned to metal. And he also had the brainwave that he should cast individual letters. By the sound of things, there was no one eureka moment in all of this. In the words of Thomas Edison, it was 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration bit by bit. By the 1470s, there would be a standard set of about 150 characters. For each, a die was cut, in which the soft metal type character was cast, and then finished off with a file by hand. Now, I know what you're thinking. Gosh, that's a laborious process. But this is a triumph. Previously, he'd been cutting out each individual letter, a process which took a good craftsman an entire day. Once again... The invention of printing was not just one problem, it was a whole load of connected ones which Gutenberg knocked over one by one. Lord knows how he stuck at it. Next up, ink. The inks used for writing by hand were not good enough for printing. They were water-based, they smudged and wouldn't spread uniformly. Gutenberg turned to the experience of the Italian painters who had invented a way of mixing pigments, pigments being insoluble substances, which they suspended in linseed oil. Gutenberg experimented with this and eventually landed with a mixture of soot, turpentine and linseed oil. The new ink was shiny black and stuck well to slightly damp paper. You had to dampen the paper in the printing process for all of this to work, by the way. And then it gave a good, sharp image. Smooth. Apparently, this is actually a varnish, not an ink. Next came the press itself. The papermaking industry... Another industrial process we must cover sometime, given that it makes cloth making as easy as pie, had recently adapted the wine press for use in papermaking, and Gutenberg did the same thing. It made life much easier. A quick turn of the screw made a sharp impression on paper. The arrival of printing transformed the demand for paper. Parchment and vellum were far too expensive to be used for printing. Right from the start, they also invented a way of producing two- and four-colour printing. Essentially, you just left out the type that you wanted coloured, then created a separate composed page, which you inked separately, and then ran the paper through again. Easy peasy, squeeze the lemon. While Gutenberg was solving all his technical problems, he realised that he had another. He wasn't doing this just for the love of it, he wanted to go into business. But he had no money. And the combination of commerce and technology was to be Gutenberg's personal disaster, though he did not know that when he met a man called Fust, who agreed to go into business with him in Mainz. It's back in Mainz by this time, Gutenberg. Gutenberg's money-making idea was to print the most popular book he could think of, which turned out to be the Bible. And there is a theme in there. Religion was to remain far and away, far and away, the most popular area of publishing. In 1456, then, Gutenberg and his backers Fust and Schoerfer produced what is probably the first printed book using movable type, the Gutenberg Bible, printing 180 copies. You might imagine that would make Gutenberg a very rich man, but you would be wrong. In fact, Gutenberg now owed 20,000 guilders, which sounds like a lot of money, and his backers had lost patience, and they sued him. By 1456, he had lost any rights to the business that he'd formed. There was, of course, no patent office those days, so anyone was free to use his inventions, which Fust and Scherfer fully intended to do, and had no intention of giving any of the credit to Gutenberg. That would be for them. It seems as though Gutenberg might have set up his own little printing shop. In 1462 he had to leave Mainz, now in his 60s, and seemed to be still making a living by printing – but it wasn't until 1465 that the Archbishop of Mainz put some of this wrong right, recognising his achievements, rewarding him with an honour and income. So when he died in 1468, three years later, Gutenberg would at least be living in some comfort and be basking in at least some recognition. Less than he deserved, no doubt, but something at least. Oakley-doakley, that's it for this time. Next time, we'll start with the spread of printing and its arrival in England, before then returning to Henry and his foreign problems.